reason why they say all roads lead to Rome. Caesar Augustus had issued a decree that uh, there would be free bread, free food, free drink, free entertainment for all the people who lived within the city of Rome. It was Rome's way of keeping the masses home. It was Rome's way of keeping the masses compliant. Uh, if there was boredom, you know, people might get in uproar. Uh, people might try to rebel. If there's boredom, they might criticize the emperor, criticize the government. So to keep them entertained, to keep them fed, to keep them in drink was a strategy on how to lead the society. There was free bread to be had in Rome. Uh, you could go to the Colosseum for free entertainment. Uh, that's what our sporting arenas are based on, a prototype, 50,000 seats. You could go there and you could watch gladiator versus gladiator, slave versus versus slave, uh, man versus animal, and, and, and just be enthralled by the violence and the excitement of the crowd. If you get tired of the Colosseum, you could go to the Hippodrome. They're the, the original uh, kind of plan for NASCAR, right? 250,000 seats watching chariot races go around that huge track. And as a slave, you didn't have any money to bet. You couldn't make money at the TAB, but you went there for the carnage. The, the, the wrecks, the blood, the, the, uh, the, the violence that happened in these races, every young man was drawn there. Tired of the big crowds? Theater after theater after theater provided free entertainment, free shows that you could go and watch 24-7 throughout the day. And if you're a slave and you're hiding out on the streets and you're on the run, there's entertainment and there's free bread. There's free drink. My bet, is that's why he went there. He wanted to get lost in the crowd, right? He can't get a job. He's on the run. He doesn't have papers. He's illegal. He's not a citizen of the country. So he lives on the street. And when you live on the streets, word gets around. Word gets around quickly. Who's generous? Who's helpful? Who will look after you while you're stuck on the street? Now, from this point of the story, we're not sure how they connected. We're not sure how they contacted each other. We're not sure how this slave named Onesimus got in contact with this apostle named Paul. Philemon. 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 It's one of the most unlikely stories in the Bible. It's one page. No chapters. Just verses. And Paul's in prison. He's writing. He writes while he's in prison. And under house arrest, which means uh, people can come and go and see him. He's not allowed to leave. See, back then, people that were on long-term arrest, why would Rome want to look after them? Why would Rome want to pay for their food and their clothing? So the great way that the Roman government decided to deal with long-term prisoners is that they take care of themselves. You're under house arrest. You can't leave, but you've got to find your own food. You have to find your own clothing. And so prisoners would have people that would kind of look after them and would visit and drop off money and clothing and food. And so while under house arrest, Paul would write these churches that were supporting him as he was supporting them because he was planting those churches originally. And, and he would tell them uh, stories. He would go into a town, tell stories about Jesus, testimonies about Jesus. And he would plant these churches. And so he would write these churches from prison. He wrote to Ephesus. And that's the letter we call now the book of Ephesians. He wrote churches in Philippi, which is now the book of uh, Philippians. He wrote, to a lot, he wrote a lot to the churches in Corinth, which we have first and second books of Corinthians. These are letters that make up the majority of our New Testament Bible. 
One of the churches that Paul planted was in Colossae. And there, uh, there were home churches in this town. And, and, and in those home churches, all started by Paul, there was an owner of a home church that had a slave named Onesimus. And Onesimus ran away. He ran away from his master. And he made his, his way to Rome where he heard there was free bread and free entertainment and a way to get lost in the crowds. And somehow, somehow that church planter and that slave in that big city Somehow they met. Somehow they connected. And Paul realized, you got to go home. You can't stay here. I want to help you out. I'm going to give you a get-out-of-jail-free card, if you will. And I'm going to write a letter to your owner. I'm going to write a letter to Philemon. And one of the most unlikely and shortest books of the Bible, we have one of the most powerful, most life-changing examples for us here at Central to imitate. So if you have your Bible, I want you to look to the book, look in the Bible for the book of Philemon. I'll give you about 10 minutes to find it. It's really small, really, really small. So if you're going to look for it, it's one page. Go towards the back. Go past all the T chapters, all the T's, all the Thessalonians and Timothy and Titus, and then you have Philemon. Or just get out your flat screen, pull it up on your phone, and have a little look. It'll only take one screen. It's that short. No chapter. 25 verses. So let's do a simple running commentary through this one hit wonder, shall we? So starting at verse 1, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, uh, not of Rome. Interesting. He's not a prisoner of Rome. No matter where he found himself, whatever circumstance he found himself, he always found, who am I in Jesus in this circumstance? So a prisoner of Christ Jesus and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our dear friend and fellow worker. Also to Ephia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier. And to the church that meets in your home. This is a life group. He's writing to a life group. And Philemon is the life group leader. And he runs it with his wife. And the life group meets in their living room. Paul had planted this church. There's probably several homes, several house churches, several life groups all throughout the town that this church meets in. Because remember, church is not a building. Meeting in a building like this is a fairly new thing. Church is in a house. Church were groups of people that did life together. Uh, it's a recent development to have it all in one big building. But church is a network of friends, of family, of life groups, of house churches. And one of those life groups is in Philemon's home. And Paul includes the people who live in that home in this letter. He includes Philemon's wife and his son because this is a very, very personal letter. And it's going to deal with some very, very personal issues that, that affect everybody that lives in that house. See, now Paul normally writes groups, right? Like Ephesians and Colossians and Philippians and, and, and Corinthians. He writes to multiple groups of homes, multiple house churches, big groups of people. But this one he gets personal. This time he says, I have a word for you, Philemon, singular. It involves your wife. It involves your son. It's going to hit uh, touchy issues like slavery and wealth and property. Delicate, to say the least. See, in the Roman household, uh, the wife would have been in charge of whatever slaves that family owned. So it includes her. The son would have gotten the gifts of being a part of a wealthy family. So it affects him. And so Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus writes, grace and peace to you from God our Father 
and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God as I remember you in my prayers because I hear about your love for all his holy people and your faith in the Lord Jesus. Oh, I pray that you may be active in sharing your faith so that you will have full understanding of every good thing we have in Christ. Your son, uh, sorry, your love has given me great joy and encouragement because you, brother, have refreshed the hearts of the Lord's people. Now, what Paul is doing here is genius and quite amazing. See, you've just received a personal letter from the Apostle Paul. He didn't write it to the church. He wrote it to you. We got this guy, the Apostle Paul, planting churches all over the region. He's in prison now. He writes books of the Bible on how to grow in Christ. And you're sitting in your living room and you get a knock on the door and someone hands you a letter and it's from Paul. Paul. And he goes, I, Paul, am writing you. Now, if I got a letter like that, it would start off, I, Paul, are writing to you, Brian. You better sit down for this one. Because if I get a little about that, I've heard about you, Brian. I'm sitting down. This can't be good, right? There's no way this is going to be good. I heard about you. I heard about your home. I heard about your life group. I heard that you love the people in it. I heard that you love the saints. You know, you know there's a but coming up pretty soon. I'm encouraged about how you're following Christ and loving others. But there's this one little thing. There's this one little thing I love to say. I pray. I pray that you would be active and sharing your faith so you may have a full understanding of every good thing that we have in Christ. See, not sharing your faith, Paul's highlighting, means you may just possibly miss out on God's plan. He says, let me tell you, I hope you're active and sharing your faith. He means living out your faith through generosity, through how you treat people, through how you talk to people, how you, how you tell your story about why you love and follow and live like Jesus to people. Because when you do that with others, you're going to walk in the fullness of everything God has for you. In other words, if we're not sharing our faith and that whole big picture of what that is, we might be missing out on God's plan. See, Christianity has never been a solo sport. Not once. It's never been about finding your way to Jesus and finding your way to heaven. That's part one. But there's a part two to Christianity, and that is telling everybody about that. Sharing that, that you know Jesus. To be light and, so, and salt and witness and flavor and love in somebody else's life. What God has allowed you to have and to partake in Share that. Share that. Don't be stingy with that. Paul writes, I hope you're sharing your faith through word and through generosity so you can have the fullness of everything God has planned. Which also means, conversely, not sharing our faith may, may, may mean missing out on your purpose. And one of the reasons why God has you here so many times I hear really well-meaning, lovely, loving, genuine church people talk to me about this Holy Spirit thing. I don't, I don't get it. I don't experience the Spirit. I don't, I don't know the Spirit's working in my life. And spoiler alert, if you ask me something along those lines, I will usually first ask you, 
well, are you about the Spirit's work? Are you partnering with the Spirit and what He wants you to do? See, because if you're about what the Spirit wants, my bet is you're going to very much sense the Spirit's working in your life. What does the Spirit want for you to continue to be changed in you so you can be more and more like Jesus? And then share that with others, because that's what the Holy Spirit does. It says if you're involved with those two things, partnering with God in those two things, you're going to encounter the Spirit's work in your life. You're going to see him do miraculous things. You're going to see change happen in your life and the life of those that are closest to you. Paul writes, are you sharing this with somebody to get the fullness of God's plan for you and to understand your purpose? So, Central, let me ask. This is your first take-home assignment since I've been here. From wherever you're watching this, whether you're watching a home and a house church or we're here live like this now, who is it? Who is it that God's asking you to share your faith through action and word and generosity and presence with? Who's that person right now? Right now, on your heart, right now. Right now you're thinking, oh man, he's done it. He's reminding me of so-and-so. Who is that person that God's put in your life to share his love to? See, I hope we all have someone that immediately comes to mind. You hear Christians say all the time, Man, I'm just called to love everybody. I hate that. I really, really, I can love everybody, but I don't have to like anyone. It's just one of those phrases we throw out there, right? It's, it's, yeah, that's true, but no, nah, not really. Because sometimes I think saying that we love everyone is an excuse to not love somebody, someone. Just love somebody. Don't start with everybody. Just start with one person. Be strategic about one person. There's one person God's placed in your life. Might be in your family, might be at work, might be in your school, might be in your club, in your sports, your classroom. Wherever that is, who's that person God put there that doesn't know him yet? And you're there to introduce them. But the scary part is, if you do that, what happens if they ask you something you don't know about? What if they ask you to recite the book of Romans by memory? What if, uh, what if they say, hey, what about the dinosaurs and the flood? What's that all about? Really? You're thinking, yeah, I mean, we don't need to be worried about the questions we might get asked. I think sometimes the most powerful words we can ever say as a church community is come and see. Just come and see. See, I, I think we've forgotten the power and the joy and the hope that comes from doing church together whether it's here or in a home group, about being together. We forget the power and the love and the joy that comes from that. Um, you just let people you know, say, look, you know what? You know I go to church. You know I'm a Christian. May Jesus has helped me out in so many areas of my life. Why don't you just come and see? Just come and see. We'll sit with you. We'll sit in the back. And if it's really bad or you can't deal with the dude's accent, we'll get up and leave. So it's no big deal. We'll get up and we'll leave together. But just come and see. Just check it out. So who is it? Who's God put in your life, in your circle of influence? They don't know him, but you know them. Who's he asking you to introduce himself to? I promise he has somebody. But then Paul goes on to write, and you think that was a guilt trip. He goes on to write one of the best guilt trips in history with this next line. He says, look, you're great, so keep sharing your faith. I've heard good things about you. And then he writes verse 8. Therefore, 
Although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, yet I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love. It, as, it is as none other than Paul. And remember, I'm an old man and now also a prisoner in Christ Jesus. I could order you to do something. I could tell you. I, 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 let me do, but first, let me remind you who I am. I'm Paul. I'm Paul, the Apostle Paul, and I'm old. I'm old, and I'm in prison. I'm in prison for creating the very church that's looking after you right now. Isn't this good? This is so good. He goes, I could order you to be the one who, I could order you as the one who started the church and planted the church. I could order you to do what you know you need to do, but instead I'm just going to ask. I'm just going to ask. Oh, by the way, I'm really old and I'm in prison. So I'm just asking a favor, you know, as an old man in prison does. You know how you do. And then it goes on, verse 10. And I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. And right there, Philemon goes, don't. No, don't. Don't be talking to me about Onesimus. No, I did everything for that slave of mine, and he left me. Don't you talk about me. I have people looking all over the planet for this guy. That runaway kid, he robbed me. He least rob me of the price of his head of being my slave. I don't, I don't know why. I have no reason. Do not talk to me about this guy. We have been looking for this guy everywhere. There is a warrant out for his arrest. Oh, you know where Onesimus is. This letter better tell me where he is. And it goes on, verse 11. Formerly, he was useless to you, and now he has become useful both to you and to me. Now, this is hilarious. I don't know why you're not laughing. That is a hilarious line right there. There's a comedy going on right here. Paul's got jokes, and he just wrote a joke. What's happening here is word playing is going on. And, and, and I wonder, as Philemon read this, if he even kind of went, oh, Paul, that was clever. That was clever. So, you know, it's not funny to us, though, is it? Because we don't know what Onesimus means. Guess what Onesimus means? It means useful. His name means useful. He's using the same word here three times. Hey, I need to appeal to you about your slave, useful. I met him in, in, in prison, and he's become a son to me. He wasn't useful to you, but now he's useful to me and can be useful to you again. Clever, right? See, he didn't live up to his name. He wasn't close to the person that God created him to be. And then he met Jesus. He's found out who he is, who his potential is, who he could be, what he could be. He's figured out what his real identity is. And then Paul goes, now for the tough ask. I'm sending him, who's my very heart, back to you. I would have liked to keep him with me so that he could take your place in helping me while I am in chains for the gospel. But I did not want to do anything without your consent so that any favor you do would not seem forced, but would be voluntary. Perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. He is very dear to me, but even dear to you, both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. 
So if you consider me my partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. Thank you very much. Thanks. In the first century, historians have estimated that the Roman Empire was made up of about 60 million slaves. 60 million slaves. Depending on different sources and how you want to count what was considered the Roman population, somewhere between one-third and half of all the civilians in the Roman Empire were slaves. That's a problem. That's a problem. Because slavery was very different back then than the horrific tragedy that my homeland has done when it comes to slavery and kidnapping people based on race and pigmentation and ethnicity. In the Roman government, slavery was part of how they segregated their society. There were free citizens of Rome. There were those that were able to buy their citizenship of Rome. There were free foreigners that if you just showed your passport, showed your papers, you could prove that you were a foreigner and you were free. And then everybody else is considered a slave. Now, some of the most educated, most highly paid workers in Rome were slaves. Doctors, lawyers, accountants, professors. They were all deemed slaves because they didn't have Roman citizenship. It's a big, encompassing word. There were so many slaves that the Senate actually feared that there might be an uprising. They could overtake us if they wanted to. So what they did is they allowed an owner to have any way they wanted with a slave. Whatever justice an owner deemed fitting to whatever a slave did wrong, that slave owner could do. He was allowed to do whatever he wanted to his slave. So in this case, we don't know the full story. But somewhere, some reason, Onesimus ran away from Philemon. He made his way to Rome. And whether he heard it on the streets or whether he bounced into him by accident, he saw that there was a man that could help him. He might have recognized that Paul was the guy who used to teach in that church that was in the home of my master. But for whatever reason, they come in contact. And Paul disciples him. And he comes to know Jesus and now Paul makes the big ask. And he says, Onesimus, you've got to go back. All right, I'll give you a letter. I want you to deliver a Bible, a book of the Bible called Colossians to the church in Colossia. And then I want you to take the separate letter directly to Philemon. And because I want him to make this right. I want you to make this right. So he continues to write, verse 18. If he has done any, if he has done you any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will pay it back, not to mention that you owe me your very life. Just slide that in there real quick. I do wish, brother, that I may have some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ, confident of your obedience. I write you, knowing you will do even more than I ask. And one more thing. Prepare a guest room for me, because I hope to be restored to you in answer to your prayers. And just check up and see what you did as a result of my letter. And one more thing. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends you greetings. And so do Mark, uh, Aristocrus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. And the letter ends with the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. It began, in verse 3, with grace to you and peace to you from our God, our Father. 
this small piece of paper, this one-page book of the Bible, bookended with grace. Philemon, we have an issue. I know what culture says. I know what the law says you're allowed to do. I know you can do whatever you want to Onesimus, but I'm writing to you as a leader of a life group that meets in your living room every week to practice what you preach, to practice your Christianity. And it's going to come in an area that you've been wronged. You have been wrong. Onesimus was wrong to steal from you and to run away from you. And, but it's kind of coming in an area where you have every right to react the way you want. I understand why you want to react this way, but because you are who you are, and because of whose you are, I'm encouraging you to deal with this situation in a much different way. What Paul's highlighting is that when we do wrong, we need to make things right. And when we've been wronged, we need to let it go. Let it go, let it go. We need to let it go. When we do wrong, we need to make it right. But when we've been wronged, we need to get over it. We need to let it go. And he says, so I'm asking both of you, Onesimus, you ran from your owner. You stole from him. You broke the law. You are a fugitive on the run. I'm telling you, go back and make it right. Own your stuff. But Philemon, I could command you to do this. But I'm just going to ask you to let this one go. Oh, and by the way, you owe me your life. It's a great line. Great line. See, these are the words of Paul. He's picking up on almost everything Jesus has ever taught about reconciliation and redemption and forgiveness. Everything Jesus ever taught about how we change the moment we become a Christian. You may have all the right culturally, all the right legally to respond one way, but the moment you gave your life to Jesus, you choose to act differently to react differently. And Paul says, I'm, I'm going to remind you of that. I don't want you to sit in your life group, in your living rooms, and discussing theology and discussing the Bible so that you have all the right answers in your head. I care more about how you live that out. I care more if you allow Scripture <coughs> to change you to the power of God's Spirit. He says, are you going to hold to Christianity as some kind of religion and, and righteously adhere to what you decide is right and wrong? Or are you going to let your life with Jesus be a testimony by the way you live it out, by the way you treat other people? Onesimus, Philemon, puts his hands on their shoulder metaphorically through a letter. It's going to take a lot from both of you. It's going to be difficult but you can do this because Jesus did it for you first. See, Paul is standing as a mediator. I know you've been wrong. I know you have every reason to get a pound of flesh from Onesimus. I know he doesn't deserve, uh, I know he doesn't deserve it. I know uh, he owes you everything, anything. Whatever he owes you, I'll pay for it, he says. I'm writing this with my own hand. Oh, and by the way, you owe me your life. May I remind you once more who you were? Can I remind you one more time the grace that has been given you? 
Now, before we wrap this up with how the story ends, I, I think we need to look at another bizarre story really quick. It's very bizarre. Found in Matthew 18, if you want to find that chapter. I'm going to start at verse 21 in Matthew 18. See, Jesus teaches this stuff. He's been teaching this stuff, this theme of forgiveness for months. And, and now, as Christians, uh, I think we're supposed to be reminded of everything God has given us and what it means to pass that on to others. The forgiveness, the grace, the mercy that we have been given by Jesus has to be passed on to other people. It's not ours to keep. And, and Jesus is teaching that to the big crowds in the book of Matthew, and the crowd hates it. They do not like hearing this. Whoa, they're what? What? You can hear them yelling in the crowds. Are you kidding me? These people have been wronged. I have been wronged over and over and over. There are people who have wronged my family. There are people in my family that have wronged me. There are people who seriously owe me. And, and he goes, I know, I know, I know. But here's what you signed up for the moment you allow me to be the Lord and Savior of your life. See, earlier in chapter 5 of Matthew, uh, he grabs the disciples together and he says, look, if any of you are going to temple and you're going to offer a gift at the temple, at the altar, and you remember that a brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift in front of the altar and go make things right and go reconcile with your brother and sister. Then come back and offer your gift. Now, this is how serious this passage works in today's world. Let me take away the altar talk and the temple talk because we don't use those phrases now. Jesus is saying, if you're going to come to church, whether it's live, whether it's home in your home group, or whether you're watching online, and you're going to worship him and you're going to pray to God, but you know you got an issue with another brother or sister in Christ, and they have something against you or you have something against them, there's a problem between you two. You need to get out. You need to leave the worship service. You need to go clear it up and then come back and worship. Doesn't that sound extreme? That sounds so extreme. But if you have a parent, if you're a parent of more than one kid, you know exactly how this works. You know exactly how this works. You're driving in the car, and in the back, car, you, back seat you have three of your kids. One kid is screaming and calling the, the other two names. You dumbhead, you stupid face. And he's doing that while the other two are fighting with each other, and they're hitting each other, and they're fighting, and you drive by McDonald's, and while they're fighting, all of a sudden they all yell, Dad, can we get a Sunday?" And you're like, What? Are you kidding me? You have been fighting for the last 10 minutes. You've been calling horrible, saying horrible things at each other for the last 10 minutes, and now you're asking me for ice cream? And Jesus says, look, you come to church, and you want to worship your father. You want to pray. You want to ask God to take care of stuff for you. And there's other people in your Christian family that you have a problem with, and you're fighting, or you're bickering, or you're spreading gossip and rumor, whatever. You need to go clear that up first. Don't be talking to me about ice cream until you go talk to them about what's going on first. Sort it out. Forgive each other. Now come back and let's worship together. But don't fight in front of me, he says. He says, don't fight in front of me while you're here at church. It's an embarrassment. When you fight each, against each other and you sit and worship together, God's saying it's an embarrassment. Now, the wheels are spinning in the disciples' heads, right? They're spinning. The next chapter, chapter 6, he says, um, look, let me teach you how to pray. 
Remember now, this is called the Lord's Prayer, right? And Jesus says, this is how you pray. The disciples, well, how do we pray? This is how you pray. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Remember, you know that prayer. Then he goes on with this example of a model how to pray. Remember, he gets to the middle of that prayer, and he says, give us today our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we have also forgiven our... That's why we don't pray that prayer. Because that part's hard. See, Jesus says the next lines after this is because if you forgive other people that have sinned against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, the people who have sinned against you, your heavenly Father will not forgive your sins. He was joking, right? Jesus has got jokes now, right? He's, he's not, this, there's got to be a clause in this somewhere. I've looked. There's got to be a clause in that. This can't be true. But it says, I want you to pray this every day. Every day, God, forgive my sins just like I have forgiven everybody else's. Because, he says, I tell you, if you can't forgive the other people's sins, you won't be forgiven by my Father in heaven. Well, that's not what they taught me in Sunday school. That's not even close. The flannel graph had nothing like that. But Jesus makes this pretty clear. It's actually very, very clear. Now, the disciples' heads are spinning right now. Are you serious? And then we come to the story in chapter 18 of Matthew, starting at verse 21. Peter comes up to Jesus and says, Lord, how many times do I need to forgive my brother when he sins against me? Uh, like, I don't know, seven? Seven times? Now, because Peter says, I got a family member who's an idiot, and, and he's done horrible things to me, so how many times do I have to forgive this guy? How about, how about seven? Now, Peter's showing off, because the rabbis taught you only had to forgive someone three times. So he's like, I'm going to double that and put an extra one down. So he's like strutting his stuff right here, and Jesus says, look, I'm going to talk to you about this once and for all and clear the air, because I'm tired of talking about it. We've been doing it for the whole book of Matthew up to this point. So I'm going to tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. In the verse 23, therefore, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who decided to bring his accounts up to date with servants who had borrowed money from him. In the process, one of the debtors was brought in who owed him millions of dollars. He couldn't pay, so his master ordered that he be sold along with his wife and his children and everything he owned to pay the debt. But the man fell to his face and, and, and begged the master and begged the master, please be patient with me. I will pay it all. Then his master was filled with pity for him and he released him and forgave his debt. But when the man left the king, he went to the fellow servant. He went to a fellow servant who also owed him a few hundred thousand dollars and he grabbed him by the throat and demanded instant payment. His fellow servant fell down before him and begged him for a little more time. Be patient with me. I will pay it back, he pleaded. But his creditor would not wait. And he had the man arrested and put in prison until the debt could be paid in full. Well, when some of the other servants saw this, they were really upset. They went to the king and told him everything that had happened. Then the king called in the man that he had forgiven and said, You evil servant. I forgave you that tremendous debt because you pleaded with me. Shouldn't you have mercy on your fellow servant just as I had mercy on you? Then the angry king sent the man to prison to be tortured until he had paid his entire debt. That's what my heavenly father will do to you if you refuse to forgive your brothers and sisters from your heart. Um... 
That's one of those passages you highlight with a black vivid, right? <laughs> That's in red letters in your Bible. That is in red letters, the words of Jesus in your Bible. He was like, look, there are people in your life who have wronged you. There are people in life that owe you. There's people in your life that have hurt you. I'm telling you, don't come to church and try to worship if you know there's other brothers and sisters in, in Christ, brothers and sisters in Christ, Christ, that you have something against, that have something against you. Clean that up to the best of your ability. Clear the air to the best of your ability. And now, let me tell you how to pray from now on. In every one of your prayers, say to God, thank you for this day. Thank you for the way you look after me and provide everything I need. Oh, and God, by the way, please forgive me as I have forgiven. And he's saying, put some real names in there. The way I've forgiven Robert and Kevin and Jennifer and whoever it is. God, forgive my sins. Forgive my acts. Forgive the way I have... Forgive me the way I have forgiven my ex or forgiven that boss of mine or the way I've forgiven whoever it is that you need to forgive and let it go. Because in the same way you forgive others, your Father will forgive you. This is what Paul was echoing on as he's writing to Philemon and reminding him who he is and what God has done for him through Jesus and he's saying, look, Philemon, I don't want you to sit in your living room with your life group and discuss the Bible and make sure everybody has the right theology if you can't live it out from your heart and show love and forgiveness to others. Oh, and by the way, prepare a room for me because I'm going to show up one day and just see how you're doing with this, is what he writes. See, our personal relationship with Jesus is never personal. Nothing's personal. We got this little phrase in Christianity, I have a personal relationship with Christ. It's personal in that you have to make a personal decision. You have to come to a point in your life where you're going to personally decide, this is who God is. This is who his son is. This is what Jesus has done for me on the cross to pay for my debt. This is who I was. This is who I can be in Jesus. So I'm going to accept Jesus' grace and love, and mercy, and forgiveness. That's a personal decision. But right after that, it becomes public. It's all public. It's part of baptism. It goes, what was hidden before, psh, up, you're a new life, you're a new person. Everybody sees, live it out. Don't hide this. Be light, be salt. See, if your personal relationship in, is a Christianity that you just kind of believe in and you kind of hold to, but it's not lived out in real time with real people, I seriously doubt it's Christianity. It's religion. That's called personal religion. You have a personal thought about God, and, 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 but it doesn't impact anything to what you do. See, following Jesus is never personal. It's always public. So Philemon, I'm resting on the fact that your personal relationship with Christ and the way you love church and the way you love the people in your life group is now going to spread out to people that you're going to have a hard time loving. I'm confident you're going to do what's right and encourage me by the way you act on this. Because true Christianity will only be seen in how we love those that have wronged us. See, true Christianity is going to show up in how you love those that have wronged you. Yeah, but 
Brian, are you telling me that I'm supposed to trust them again? No, I'm not saying that. That would be silly. But you're telling me I'm supposed to let them back into my house where they brought No, 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 no. I'm not saying that. Not until they've changed and made things right and have kind of earned that. What I'm saying is forgiveness is saying to God, because of what you've given me, I'm going to give them. And whatever justice I think needs to happen here, whatever revenge I think needs to happen here, I'm going to leave it to you, God, because you're a whole lot better at this than I am. I'm going to let it go. Truly let it go. Because the way you loved me and the way you forgave me. And, and, and I'm going to offer that to somebody else in my life who doesn't deserve, deserve it. Who hasn't earned it. Who has wronged me. I'm going to offer it to them the way you offered it to me. See, true Christianity is going to show up in how we love the people that have wronged us. But it's also going to show up in how we love the people who look different than us who are very different than us. The Apostle Paul, notice he doesn't say anything about slavery. He doesn't address slavery being wrong. He doesn't speak against slavery. Instead, he sets a higher law. It's a higher law that's actually going to end up abolishing slavery. You accept him now what? Not as a slave. Don't let him come back as a slave. You accept him as a brother, as an equal, no longer a slave to you. He is my son. You accept him the way you would accept me, Paul says. You see, truly loving others only happens when we remember that we deserve the death penalty because of the stuff in our lives that we can only truly begin to love others that have wronged us or look different than us. It only happens when we remember that we deserve the death penalty, that we have to remember where we've come from. What I gotta remember, I'll put it in my language where I've come from, what I've done, the amount of wrath that I have stored up between me and God, the amount of sins that I have committed, that for all of eternity I'm going to be separated from God because of these sins, and that's what I've earned. And the reality is i got to remember that, and then remember I needed a mediator. I needed someone to do what Paul did for Onesimus and stand in front of me and says, but I will pay whatever it is that Brian owes. I'm writing this with my own hand. Brian has done God wrong. Brian has done wrong. Forgiveness and grace and mercy doesn't mean there's no justice. We're just going to let God deal with the justice. It's not our job to deal with the justice. We need a mediator. What I needed was my internal, eternal debts paid. I needed someone else to do that because I couldn't afford it. I needed Jesus. See, we all need that. Until we remember we all needed Jesus. We all needed Jesus to stand between us and God and say, they owe you. They're sins. They are awful. They are awful people. Those people are central, awful people. But you love them, God. I love them. I will pay for their sins. We need to remember that. See, you might think that certain people's sins are worse than your own. They're not. We all need the same mediator to pay the same eternal debt. We all need the same Jesus. Look, I think for us here at Central, I think the next 10 years are going to be quite a challenge. I think the next decade or so for our life depends on our ability to live out this small, little, one-hit wonder. I really do. Our, our culture says that the real loving churches are the ones that accept everybody, whatever they decide to do, however they want to live. Let them do whatever they want, but just love them. And there's going to be churches that grow along those lines. Then there's other churches where this, this line divides now and it's turned into a chasm. 
And there's other churches that say, no, we're going to stand for what is right, for the truth of God. And we're going to preach it, and we're going to pound it, and we're going we're to tell people, we're going to let them know where they're wrong. And they're going to come across as very unloving in our culture. And our staff team and our elders and we as a church are going to have to wrestle. There's got to be a third way. There's got to be a way. There's got to be a way where we can hold the truth and the purity of God's word and scream love unconditionally to whoever crosses our path. See, I think our world today is crying out, someone please love me, and someone please help me not feel judged. And we as a Christian church have done the judging part really well. We need to flip it. Justice is God's. Our job is to live out truth, to show truth, to explain truth, to show why Jesus loves everybody, show the extent of why Jesus went to hold up a standard that we call Bible, we call canon. We're not going to water that message down at all. But that is an offense to most people. Before I gave my life to Jesus, that was an offense to me. You're calling me a sinner? What? But man, if our love screams louder than the offense that the truth of the Bible gives, that's when people can swallow it. That's when they see Jesus lived out and they go, yeah, he holds a standard up here, but man, you follow that standard, he lifts you up here. How do I not, how could I not want that? Anyone who walks into our building, anyone who walks into your homes at house churches, they need to know that when you sit in a living room, when you sit on a row, every one of these people here were once upon as messed up as I was. And they have changed. Look at what Jesus has done. And now they all know my name. And they know all about me. And they love me anyway. There's got to be something about this Jesus. It's how it's always worked. Nothing's changed. The sins are different. But the message and the method has not changed. Are we going to be arms wide open people? who say, here's the Bible. Here's our hand. We're going to wrap both around you. Let's talk about what it means to love Jesus. That's the challenge. That's our challenge. So let's get back to Onesimus. What happened to him? What did Philemon do? What happened to him? The Bible doesn't say. It's a short book. It doesn't say. But an ancient letter was found, written by a, name, by a guy named Ignatius, one of the early church leaders. He was a bishop over a group of churches in Asia Minor, and he wrote this letter to Colossians. And in the letter he writes this, since then, in the name of God, I received your entire congregation in the person of Onesimus, a man of inexpressible love, and your pastor. I beseech you in Christ Jesus to love him. What? Not only did Philemon let him come back, not only did he write off all the debts, not only did he not press charges, not only did he receive him as an equal, Onesimus is now his pastor. He now sits under the teaching of Onesimus as Onesimus leads this church of home groups because grace and mercy and forgiveness is contagious. And if it's not contagious, it's not Christianity. And, and that's who we are.
Let's pray. Father God, help us. Help us to be who you showed us we could be through your son Jesus. Help us to forgive people of all things and leave the justice to you. Help us to let it go where we got to let it go. Give us the strength, the strength and the courage to make things right where I got to make things right with other people. And then God, in this crazy world that we live in now, regardless of what culture says and what culture tells our action or reaction or acceptance should and should not be, help us to always respond like Jesus with love and truth and grace and mercy. Father God, may you find us faithful no matter who you bring into our lives, no matter who you bring into our doors and our homes and our church, no matter where they're from or what they look like or what they've done or what they're still doing, no matter what the choices they've made, may you find us faithful to love them. Love them the way you loved us and to trust you to do the rest. Give us the way and understanding to open up your Bible, to tell stories of why we love you, stories of how you change our lives in such a way that all can hear so that you can work on the hearts and minds of all other people the way you have already worked on ours. And help us just be your hands and feet and point people to your son. In Jesus' name, amen.